I don't know who in your house is in charge of the remote control. But in my home, it's my husband who's in charge of the remote control, pretty much because I let him have control. Right, dear? All right. Got a first amen this morning. And uh, so usually what happens every night is we'll go to bed, and we don't spend a lot of time watching TV, but we'll be flipping to their – wait, 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 let me back up. He will be flipping through the stations, and he'll come to a movie. It's just an old movie, and I'll stop and say, wait, 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 let's watch that. And he'll say, wait, wait, you want to watch this? You've only seen it like 54 times, and you can quote it by memory, right? But it's the story that I want to see. How many of you guys are just like that idealist, romantic? Even if you've seen a movie, you're going to watch it again and again. Okay, three. Oh, okay, it multiplied. Caffeine kicked in there. And um, great. Well, I love a good story. In my house, when my children were growing up, one of the things that we would do is we would tell these bedtime stories that we called fill-in-the-blank stories, and they were kind of interactive and so I'm going to try it out on you this morning and see if you can kind of help me do it. So those of you who are morning people and highly caffeinated, this is your opportunity to shine right now, okay? And so what I would do is I would begin a story, and then I would tell, like, a sentence or just, you know, like, part of a phrase, and then I would pause and I would let them fill in the blank of what they thought the story should be. You guys know how this is going to go, right? So let's just warm up here. Once upon a... See, that never take a whole lot of creative energy, did it? Okay, so it's a little bit more difficult than that, okay? So once upon a time in a far, far away land, there lived two monkeys. There were two monkeys that lived there, and they were strong, furry monkeys. And these monkeys' names were Pete and who? Pete and Repeat. And so there were these two monkeys furry and strong, and their names were Pete and Repeat. And every night they would put on their armor and they would sharpen their swords to go out and to fight the ferocious dragon. And just before they would go, they would sit down and they would eat. Sounds like bananas covered with cheese, perhaps. (laughs) Something like this. And so, see, the story could continue to go on and on, and my children wouldn't want to quit. But, of course, you know, being the parent, eventually I had to say, and they lived happily ever after the end you know, how that goes. And so we all love those kinds of stories. And one thing I love about God's Word is it is chock-a-bock full of stories. There's drama, there's mystery, there's murder, there's crime, there's romance. If you've ever read the Song of Solomon and you're reading in detail, which young boys were not allowed to read it way back in history, because it is so passionately written and and the, and, the, and the bridegroom is describing his bride and says that you are so, so beautiful to me and your hair is like a flock of goats and, and your teeth are like newly shaved lambs that have just taken a fresh bath. And we might not understand the jargon, but they begin to describe each other from head to toe and, and they describe their love for each other and it's passionate and it's hot. And they even say that, that when we're apart, it's like I'm asleep but my heart's away. You know, that kind of love. And so the Bible is filled with romance. It's filled with mystery. It's filled with suspense. It's filled with risk. It's filled with comedy. There's sometimes I'll be sitting and I'll be reading the Bible and maybe I'm the only one, but I'll come to a passage and I will just start laughing out loud. Like, for instance, there's um, kind of a parental comedy. You'll, you'll kind of understand this if you've ever played hide and seek with a two-year-old. Okay? So you're in the room with a two-year-old and they say we want to play hide and seek. And so right in front of you, they go hide. As if you didn't see where they went, right? And so they go behind the curtains, and you can see their toes pointing out, and the, and the curtains are moving. And what do you do being all mature like you are? Where are you? I can't find you. 
and you're walking around as if you haven't seen them. Well, if you've ever read in the book of Genesis, after Adam and Eve have sinned against God, he said, don't eat this fruit. And they did exactly what he told them not to. Well, they go and they hide. And it says then that they could hear God walking in the garden through the trees in the cool of the evening. And you know what God says? Where are you? As if he doesn't know. I mean, he is the all-powerful God. He is the all-knowing God. But he's kind of playing along with them here. I don't know if that makes you laugh, but I find it kind of comical. It wasn't too long ago, actually just a few weeks ago, I was reading in the book of, of Luke. And it's a story that you're familiar with where Gabriel comes and he visits Mary and he says to her, you're, you're going to have a child. And so it's, it's that story that you've probably heard over and over again. And I almost skipped it because I'd read it and heard it so many times. But this time I read it, and as I was reading it, I was listening to the words of Gabriel, and this is what he says when he appears to Mary. Greetings, O favored one. Does that not sound like a Star Wars sci-fi to you? I mean, can you not just imagine he probably even had some kind of angelic handshake or something? You know, greetings, O favored one. And the very next verse says, and Mary was puzzled, and she tried to figure out, what kind of greeting was this? And so I loved to get into God's Word, and I love it when it becomes fresh. Now, I'll tell you, there are things in it I don't always understand. There are things in it sometimes I take out of context, even. Like there's a passage in Isaiah that says, Get out and do not touch what is unclean. Go and purify yourself. So, see, to me, in my paraphrase, what that means is I'd like to take it and hang it up in my house because I need to get out. I shouldn't touch anything in there that's unclean. And I should go purify myself, which to me means go take a hot bath, get a massage, do something like this. So sometimes we're guilty of taking the scripture out of context. We've been looking at stories over the past few weeks of leaders, some that we have seen their successes and some that we have seen their failures. The story that I want to tell you today is is a pretty simple story, actually. It's about a lady named Rahab. And Rahab was a prostitute. You probably know the story. She was the lady who lived in the wall, and when the spies came to visit, she hung out a red rope so the spies could escape. Not to be confused with Rapunzel. Rapunzel is the one who was up in the tower and let down her long braids so the prince could rescue her. That's a fairy tale, okay? But Rahab is a story that took place in history. It's true, and it's real, And she became a follower of the God that you serve today. So I don't want to overcomplicate the story as we're going through it. But what I do want you to do is I want you to pretend almost like you've never heard it before. And I want the words of the page to fall fresh on your heart. And I want you to hear it. And I want you to be able to visualize the place where she lives, which is called Jericho. Which, if you can envision it, is this slope. Okay, And down here at the bottom of the slope, there's a retaining wall that has been built that stands about 26 feet high. And beyond this retaining wall now is an embankment where there then is another wall behind it that stands about 46 feet high. So I want you to be able to visualize the massiveness of the city, the strength of the city in which she belongs. I want you to be able to hear the chariots as they drive across the width of these walls that are at the top. I want you to be able to walk through the city, and I want you to be able to hear 
the women who are selling their wares in the market. And I want you to be able to hear the men as they go to the temple and they're, they're calling out for the temple prostitute. And I want you to hear the emptiness as that prostitute might laugh back and accept his offer. I want you to visit Rahab, where she lived in this wall. I want you to look out her window. I want you to see her view, maybe perhaps of the Jordan River. And the vast people that she knows are just beyond that and what God has been doing there. I want you to be able to understand the history that has been taking place before Rahab and to understand the mindset and the mentality of living in a kingdom. Because, see, what would happen is kingdoms historically, or people historically would set up kingdoms, and they would set up their rules, and they would set up their rulers, and they would set up their powers. And within this kingdom, they would also create and fashion their gods. And so whichever kingdom was the strongest, that god must also be the strongest. And if a nation served one god, but that nation conquered another nation, then the strongest nation's god became the god that everyone now would serve. And if a king came to power, whatever his idol was, whatever his, whatever it was that he worshipped, if he came to power, well, his god, his idol, must be the strongest. So that's who we need to worship. So I want you to step in to the story fresh today. Turn your Bibles to the book of Joshua. There's a verse, very last verse in the book of John, which I love because it just describes all the stories that took place. And it says something like this. It says, I'm just going to kind of paraphrase it, but it says something like this. It says that if all the stories have been written about what Jesus did, He says, I suppose that there would be not enough room in the world to contain all the books that would be written. You look it up for yourself. The very last verse in the book of John. It's exciting to hear and see and to open up God's word constantly and to see afresh the way that he moves and works. What would really help is if I could remember where Joshua is in the Bible. There we go. I want you to look at the very first verse. We're going to read it together, and it's going to appear up on the screen if you don't have your Bible with you. It says this, Then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and they came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab. Now, whether we like it or not, we kind of just have to say it like it is. Rahab was a prostitute. She was a harlot. If we want to sophisticate it a little bit, we could say that she was a lady of the evening. If we want to add more descriptions to it, things that we've heard, she could say, we could say she was a tramp or she was a hussy or a call girl or however you want to describe it. But there is no way to really dance around it. It's one of the world's oldest professions. Wherever there was food, wherever there was something that needed to be bargained for, trading for sex was one of those things that could happen and often took place. And even though it took place then, unfortunately, it still takes place today. When Mike and I, when we were living in Zambia, we went to this uh, women's conference, and all these women came in, and this lady came up to me, and she was sharing her story with me. Her name was Ida. And she said, Lori, I want to tell you what happened. She said, my father passed away, and so I collected all of this money to travel up north to where he is to travel by train. And after I had been there for a period of mourning with my family together, I gathered enough money again to take a train ride back. But on the way back to the village that I live in, the train broke down. Now, if you've ever been to a third world country, you know that when things break down, they don't just get fixed just like this. There's no AAA to call. 
or anything like that. Sometimes it's days and sometimes it's weeks before things will be fixed. So she said, so I sat in this town not knowing when the train was going to be fixed. One day goes by, two days go by, three days go by, no train is fixed. I'm out of money, so I have no food. And my small child is with me, who is now beginning to be hungry and crying loudly enough so that everyone around can hear. Crying because she's hungry. Crying because she's starving. And she said, so this man comes up to me who could hear her crying and says, I know that your child is hungry. And if you will sleep with me, then I will pay you so that you could have money for your child to eat. And she looked at me, and I've got tears in my eyes, and she has tears in her eyes, and she said, what was I supposed to do? Well, there's part of me that I wanted to tell her, but I already knew what had taken place. And then she asked me, Lori, can God still love me? Lori, can God still use me? You see, what happens a lot is we take our past and we take our pain and we take things that happen and we think that those things define who we are. I want you to look at two scriptures in the New Testament that also speak of Rahab because her reputation followed her hundreds of years later. First of all, look at the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31. It says this. It says, By faith, Rahab, the harlot, did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she welcomed the spies into peace. Who did it describe her to be? Rahab the harlot. Her reputation is following her. Now let's look at the next verse in James. It says this, In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute. Here we are again. Rahab is being described. But she's described about something that has taken in her past. But here's what happens. is people who are redeemed... Okay, which we will define that here in just a second. People who are redeemed realize that they are redeemed and delivered from their past. And the reality of their past is not who they are. But God delivers them in that past. Now let's, kind of, let's talk about that word redeemed because it's one of those spiritual words that sometimes we kind of throw around a lot. And really what it means is it means to take something that was broken and to make it whole again. Redeem means to take something that is held captive, to buy it with a cost, and to set it free. So if Rahab was redeemed, let's go back and look at those two scriptures again where we see, and it seems to stand out to us, that Rahab was a harlot. And let's see what else it says about her. So let's go back to the verse in Hebrews. Again, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31. And let's see what else that it says about Rahab. It says this, by faith, Rahab, the harlot. See, her past wasn't the only thing that described her any longer. But now what God did helps to describe not only who she is, but who he is. And let's look at the verse in James. Also, James chapter 2, it says this, And in the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous? Again, we see that it's not that our past that defines us. But God wants to take our past and liberate us. He wants to take our pain. He wants to set us free. He wants to take those things that we think define us and point to us. And he wants us to redeem He wants to redeem them so they begin to point to him. But what happens is pretty soon we begin to be in this dangerous territory where we can become overwhelmed by our past. We're hurt maybe by what others have said about us. Maybe it was something, an insult 
in elementary school that has stuck with you. Maybe it's a parent that left. Maybe it's abuse that happened. Maybe it's an abortion. Maybe it's not being able to have children. Whatever it is that we think defines us, God wants to redeem. At times we think we have no strength within ourselves to be anything else than what we currently are. And so this is what we think. I'm just a prostitute. I'm just, a, I'm just uneducated. I'm just a, a low-paid worker. I'm just, I'm just a mom. I'm just a liar. I'm just a thief. I'm just someone who committed adultery. I'm just someone who looks at pornography. I'm just someone who really doesn't have any skills whatsoever. I'm just someone who's just now kind of new to church. And we begin these things in our mind. And God looks down and he says, yes, you are. But listen, I'm the redeemer. I'm the healer. I'm the forgiver. I'm the restorer. I'm the one that is life. Amen. He says this about us in Psalm chapter 139. It describes how God sees us. It says, For I've searched you, and I know you. I know when you sit down, and I know when you rise up. I know your thoughts from afar. As a matter of fact, I scrutinize your path and your lying down, and I am intimately acquainted with all of your ways, even before there is a word on your tongue. God knows it all. So here's Rahab. And these two spies come to her. And so she takes them up on her roof and she hides them there. And it says in Scripture that, that she covers them with these stalks of flax that were used like, like to make clothing with. And she knew that there was some kind of danger. And somehow in all of this, the king knows that two spies have come and they've come to Rahab's house. And so the king sends word to Rahab. And he says, I want you to bring out these spies that have come to you. And Rahab says to the messengers, well, you're right. There were these two guys that they came, and I really didn't know who they were. I don't even know, really know who they are. But, you know, they kind of got out of here before the, the gates even shut. But I tell you what, you guys are really strong. I tell you what, if you guys can run really fast and get out of here, I bet you guys could catch up with them. You know? You know what? They take off. And immediately Rahab goes up. And I want you to see then what she unveils. Before we do, I know what you're probably thinking. Didn't she just lie? Right? She just lied. Okay, but hang with me for a second because, okay, she was also a prostitute. Okay? She's new to the faith. So let's be careful and give people grace who are just coming along and just coming to know who God is and what he expects and who Jesus Christ is and how he can free us. Let's give them time. Let's give them space. And let's journey with them in the process to becoming more like Christ. Amen? Amen. Okay, so she goes up to the spies. And I want you to see these words. And I want you to hear what she says. And I want you to feel and to sense what it is that she unveils to them. Look with me in chapter 2, in verse 8 through 11. It says, Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof. And she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water in the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings and the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan and Sion and Og and whom you utterly destroyed. 
And when we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. You know what she just did? She just unveiled weakness. You know what she did with her heart? She allowed it to be completely authentic. See, let's, let's take these scriptures and let's just kind of pick them apart for a second. Because this is what she says. She says, you know what? I know that the Lord has given you this land. Now, wait a second. She is the woman who's behind the strong walls that no one could destroy. She lives in a city that people fear their strength. How could anyone possibly come into this land? I mean, the Israelites are out there, right? But she's saying, look, I know that the Lord has given you this land. And for me and you, let's just make that personal for a minute. You know what happened? We just kind of come to a place in our heart where we realize we go, you know what? I know how my strength appears. I know I'm pretty independent, and I may come across as strong. But let me just tell you something. I know that I belong to the Lord. In fact, I know that He's in control. No matter what appearances it seems I might have, no, what, no matter what front or independence I might seem to possess, God, He is the one that is in control. And then she says this to them also. She says, and the terror of you has fallen upon us. Don't think that these walls are what keep your fear away. Don't think that any strength or facade that we seem to put up in front of other people make you actually feel strong. They may give the appearance of strong. They may give the appearance of strength. But internally, you know the reality of the weakness of your own heart. And then she says this to them. And we've heard how the Lord dried up the sea and defeated all these kings. matter of fact, we've seen everything that God has done. You know what I love about this? Is when we think about, and we go back and we think about how kingdoms operated. Okay? So Israel had been slaves, slaves under the nation of Egypt for some 300 years. And then God raises up Moses. And you know what he says to Moses? He says this. He said, I will have glory over Pharaoh. And all of Egypt will know that I am the Lord, the God. Well, what happens? He parts the Red Sea. And Pharaoh and all his men follow after the Israelites. And the Israelites get across on the other side. And God takes the Red Sea and he pours it over Pharaoh and all of his army. You think that that news didn't spread to other nations around? They heard the stories of God. They heard the stories of his power, of his renown, of his glory, of a God that isn't made out of wood that is living. And she knew, and the Israelites, and the people within Jericho knew. And she said also this, and we heard it, and our hearts melted. There comes a point when we just kind of admit authentically that we can't hold it together any longer. There comes a point when we have to admit, even to ourselves personally, that I'm not who I want to be. I'm not even what I appear to be. But that's a good place to be. Because we're going to look here in a second. I'm going to jump ahead for a minute because she's going to then turn around and proclaim. But your God, he is God. And here's what I want us to do. Okay, let's get a correct definition of what authenticity really is. 
Because I'm afraid that what we do is we define, we define it as, you know, we just want people to be real. Just be real with me. Okay? But it is that, and it's also being right. Okay? So we want to take authenticity because if you were to go and buy something original, I bought a Gucci watch for my husband. Um, I can't remember if we'd been married for a year. No, I don't think we were married. I think we had just gotten engaged. I'd taken the trip to New York City, and on the streets you can buy any kind of Rolex that you want or that you want for like 10 bucks, cheap, cheap. Okay? So I bought my husband a Gucci watch. I don't think he appreciated it as much as I appreciated it because it turned his wrist green within about two weeks. If you want the authentic, then you have to pay a price. If you want the name, there is a cost. If you want the fake, the facade, the cheap, the discounted, no worries whatsoever because you can get it pretty much at a cheap price. So if we put authenticity and we, and we put it on the right side and in the right order, because here's what normally happens. We come to church and we sing, God is mighty to save and, and he's risen from the grave and and God is true, and God is just, and, and God is love, and God restores. And we raise our hands, we pray, and then we go over here, and we say, but. And we sit down with our family, or we sit down with our friend in a coffee shop, or we sit down with our small group, and we say, but you know what, let me tell you what's going on in my life right now. And, and here's the struggle that's happening, and, and here's the pain, and, and here's the stress, and here's the worry. And we walk away from it, and what God was is now over there. And we're now focused on who we are. Authenticity should actually go the other way around. We should flip it. Because this is why. If something is authentic, then it's the original, right? And if something is authentic, it was done by the person who created it. Their signature is all over it. Correct? So if you are broken, if you are in stress, if you are in need, if you are in pain, if you are in struggle... If you are at your end, then you come this way. But God, who is the creator, the healer, the restorer, the forgiver, and authenticity goes this way. Because we are his workmanship, created in Jesus Christ for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That we are becoming more and more like our creator. Our Father, God. Let's look at the third thing that she did. Tacked on at the very end of all these things that she unveils and, and proclaims to the spies as they are there. It's the very end of verse 11. And it says this. Chapter 2, verse 11. It says, For the Lord, your God, He is, heaven, he is in heaven above and on earth below. Do you realize the weight of what she just said? Do you realize what she just denied? She just denied years of ritualistic prayers that she had been taught as a child to pray to idols. She just denied everything that her family had been teaching her for years and years and years. She just denied and gave up everything that she was and believed had been taught to say and sing and teach and dance around And she proclaims with a sincere faith that your God, he is heaven above and on earth below. You see, redeemed people with sincere belief, what happens? 
is they inhale salvation, but they exhale surrender. Well, I have a question for you. Who is your God? I know what you're thinking. That's kind of a simple question. You're not even thinking, okay, did I understand that question? Could you repeat it? Okay, I'll repeat it. Who is your God? Is he powerful? Is he strong? Is is your God faithful? Does your God know all things? You see, this place of surrender becomes the place of competition within our heart. Because what we claim to believe, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where we have to let go. This is the place that everything that you claim about God, is it really true? I mean, do we really say that my God has the power to raise his son, Jesus, from the dead, but he does not have the power to take control of the situation that I'm in? Do we really say that God holds the universe together in the palm of his hand, but I'm not sure that he understands the situation that I'm in right now? Do you see the competition that begins to take place? And so what begins to happen is when we're holding on here and we're holding on here, we begin to form spiritual arrhythmia. And our heart begins to beat to this tune, and then it's offbeat to this tune. And then it begins to beat irregularly with God. You cannot have both. And what you have to do in order for salvation, and what Rahab does, is she completely surrenders everything that she is and surrenders everything that she has. And it requires you to let go. See, you didn't come up with the concept of salvation. God did. You can't manufacture it. He comes after you. But you have to surrender those places in your heart that need to be redeemed. We went out to uh, Beaver Lake to a place called Hog's Call Hollow. And it was uh, my dad. Hey, Dad. And, uh, I, and I think my sister was with us, too. I can't, I can't remember. The whole family is there. But we go out there. We're on this boat. And there's these cliffs that are there that you can climb up and then jump off of. So we climb up there, and we're getting ready to jump off the cliffs. And you can't go up to the cliff and then just jump straight down because the water straight down is too shallow. Actually, what you have to do is you have to get hold of this rope. Okay? And you have to hang on. And you have to then jump off the cliff. And so the people are then telling us now, all right, now when you jump off the cliff, as soon as you get out to the peak of that swing, you need to let go and kind of go in at an angle so that you don't hit the bottom directly. I guess we were feeling very invincible that day because we get up there and my dad goes first. So he takes hold of the rope. And so they've instructed us on how to swing out and what to do and how to let go. And so... Dad, I hope this doesn't embarrass you. I love you dearly. Okay? So what he does is he goes out and he swings and he hits the pinnacle of his swing, but he doesn't let go. Well, nobody had told us what to do if you don't let go. And so what happens, as you can imagine, is he swings back to the rocks and all of us back on the rocks are now trying to grab hold of him without ourselves falling off. So he's not swinging back out there and then just hanging in limbo for the tree, although I have to admit that would have been quite comical to see. Okay? There is an art to letting go. There is a faith to letting go. It's called surrender. God says, I will save you. You see, you can hide in the walls if you want, but you can't stay in the wall and be saved. Do you understand what I'm saying? You can hide behind over here where no one can see you, but you can't stay here and be delivered. 
You can stay back here in the wall where you think no one sees you. In Psalm 139, I quoted a few verses there a minute ago. It continues on and it says that there is nowhere that I can go from your presence. There is nowhere that I can flee from your spirit. If I go to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in shoal, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn and I go out and I dwell in the remotest, deepest, far out place of the sea, even there your hand will lay hold of me and guide me. If I say the darkness is too dark, the darkness is going to overwhelm me. And the day is going to seem like night. But to you, night and day are alike. Darkness and light are alike to you. You see, there is nowhere that we can go from God's presence. There is nowhere that we can hide. There is no wall that you can be in that He cannot penetrate to rescue you. There is no place that you can dwell that His love cannot consume you. And that is an awesome place to be. I want you to see the very next thing that happens. The very next thing that happens is not only does she have the sincere belief that she proclaimed, but she's also concerned about the welfare of her family. And see, what often happens is when we live in those places of our heart, where we allow God to come in and redeem us, we then begin to walk with something called compassion. So see, what she did to her family is she began, she, she said to the spies, and let's look in these verses in chapter 2. The very next verses, she said in verse 12, Now therefore, please, swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all those that belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Rahab was not just concerned about her welfare. She was also concerned about the welfare of her family. But I believe there was even a greater compulsion that drove her. It wasn't just the physical freedom. I believe that she found. I believe that when she placed her faith in God, she found, as it's described in Psalms, when David says, bring my soul out of prison, that I may give praise to your name. I think she knew the deliverance that God had done in her past. I think that she knew the freedom from the pain that she felt. I think she knew the forgiveness of sin that she experienced, and she wanted her family to experience the very same thing. You see, when we live in this place of our heart, we, we walk in compassion with other people. Compassion, actually, in the Latin word, it means this. It means together with suffering. Together we are in suffering. So when we walk with somebody on their journey, and we're not just giving them a lot of religious platitudes and, and spiritual kind of common words, when we actually hear their heart, when we know the place that they've been in because you've also been redeemed in that place, then we know how to pour out compassion on one another in those places of suffering. She had sensitivity toward others. Redeemed people have compassion on others because they know the death that other people can be delivered from. Don't think, though, that Rahab was immediately rescued. They told her, they said, yeah, I'll leave out this rope and, and we're going to come back and, and you will be delivered. But if you break your promise, you will not be delivered and your blood will not be on her head. And, and she told them, when you leave, you need to go hide out for three days because there's people looking for you. 
And so they do. So they go and So now three days goes by. And then the spies go back to Joshua and they tell him everything that's happened. And then the, the Israelites circumcise themselves and consecrate themselves for another three days. So now six days are going by. And she's still in the wall, wondering and hopefully believing that God is going to save her and her family. And then the next seven days, one day goes by, they march around Jericho, if you know the story. Two days go by, they march around Jericho. Three, four, five, six, seven. A total of 13 days now Rahab has been waiting and wondering, what is God going to do? She didn't know how the walls were going to come down. She just believed that God was going to save them. God was at work. And here's the thing about redeemed people. Is there is another thing I want you to see about Rahab, and that was the activity that God had on her life. God was up to something great. You see, we're doing this leadership series. And my fear is and has been over the past few weeks that when we even say we're doing a leadership series, that there's some people and probably quite a few people that automatically go, this doesn't apply to me. And I don't think Rahab probably would have thought it would have been even applied to her. I don't think she would have bought one of those tickets to the leadership summit because she wouldn't have been qualified, educated enough. Her past probably she thought might have disqualified her for the leadership summit. She may have been sitting in here with her arms crossed thinking, okay, you know, I'm really enjoying these, but I'll be glad when we get past this leadership series because it really doesn't apply to me. But you know what? Leaders arise and come in different forms. I want to I get your participation just to kind of help prove what I'm trying to say here. You know when you're in junior high and high school, ladies, and you go out and some of you tried out for the cheerleading squad or the drill team, and, and some of you made it, some of you didn't, and then and so now they're down on the front row and they're supposed to be leading all these fans, right, and all of these cheers. And so they get up there with these fancy, smancy cheers that they learn. And you're at the game, and sometimes you're at a game that you know that your team is going to lose. They lose every time you go. You're just there because your child happens to be playing in the band, is down on the cheerleading squad, on the football team, maybe is the water boy. That's all you're really there for. And the cheerleaders can be saying, go, fight, win. And you're just going, mm-hmm, yeah, that ain't going to happen. Or maybe you've been to the kind of game like the school that my kids go to, and, and you go, and the team dominates everyone. I mean, by halftime, your team has scored 80 points. So you come after halftime at 80, 80 to 0, and the cheerleaders are going, push them back, push them back, way back, and you're going, why? I mean, the clock's running out. It's the mercy rule that's taking place now. And so you don't cheer, you don't join in. But the cheerleaders are down there doing these fancy, and I want you to see if you can catch, keep, keep up with me, okay? I want you to join in. So everybody put your things down and get your hands free because this is what we're going to do. All right? I know you always want to be a cheerleader, right? Okay. So here we go. Go fight, win. All right. It's going to go like this. Go. Fight. Win. Did you get it? Yeah, y'all are a little slow. We'll see how the next service does. But then you go to the game where there's tension in the air, right? And your team has scored a touchdown, so they've got seven points. The other team, they've also scored a touchdown, but they didn't make their extra goal. So now the the points are seven to six, just one off. But the other team, the opposing team, they've got the ball. And they're just almost in field goal range. I mean, if they're a really good team, perhaps they could make it. They're a really sorry team. They're not going to. And you're just, everybody's just kind of limbo. They're not really sure. And the clock's ticking. 
there's like maybe a couple of minutes, so you're thinking, okay, if our team scores a field goal, they're going to be ahead by two. See, really what I'm doing right now is I'm pressing all the guys. Because, see, they're, they're keeping the score. Girls, you just lost it completely with me, didn't you? Okay, trust me. If they make the field goal, they're going to be ahead by two points. And you're thinking, okay, if they make the field goal, will we have enough time to get the ball? And you're even calculating the plays out in your head. You're not coaching the team, but you know what to do. And so, pretty soon, in the stand, somewhere in the midst, we're not really sure where it comes from, but there's a guy who believes that this team can do it. And you know what he starts doing? And he elbows the guy next to him, and they start. Come on. Come on. And it gets faster, and it gets louder, and it gets faster, and it gets louder. And pretty soon, the whole stands are going. The whole stadium is clapping, and the bleachers are loud, and everybody's shouting, yeah, 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 go team, go team. Well, who was the leader? The guy that nobody even knew. Matter of fact, you're on the other side of the stadium. You don't even know where it came from. It just kind of started. Because some guy was really involved and really believed in what was going on. Was he a cheerleader down there with a little skirt and little knee socks and all that kind of stuff? No. Did he have all the fancy-smancy kind of titles and all that kind of stuff? No. He was just a guy in the stands who believed that his team could win. And so what he started became contagious. See, I don't, Rahab didn't know her story. I mean, she knew everything that had taken place in her life. But she didn't know what was going to transpire later on. You see, Rahab, the harlot, married a guy named Salmon. And together they had a child who was named Boaz. And Boaz married Ruth. And together they had a son named Obed. And Obed had Jesse. And Jesse had David. And David was the father of Solomon. And Solomon had Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, Abijah, and Abijah had Asa, and Asa had Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat had a son named Joram, and Joram had a son named Uzziah, who fathered Jotham. And he was the father of Ahaz, who fathered Hezekiah, who fathered Manasseh, who fathered Ammon, who fathered Josiah, and then Jeconiah, and then Shatil, and then Zerubbabel, and then Abiud, and then Eliakim who was the father of Azor, and then Zadok. And Zadok was the father of Akim, who was the father of Eliab, who was the father of Eleazar, who was the father of Mathon, who was the father of Jacob, who was the father of Joseph, who took Mary to be his wife and gave birth to God's only son, the very child that we call our Savior, who said that when I come, I will establish my kingdom, and they will worship me. And my kingdom, it will have no end. The Rahab didn't know that story. That happened 30 generations later. She was a harlot. She had a past. She had pain. She was broken. But God redeemed her. And see, I think there are many times that we miss leadership opportunities because we think that we're not educated enough. We're not adequate enough. We think that the people around me only knew the broken places in my heart. They wouldn't allow me to be a prince of peace right now. 
Is your God powerful? Is he powerful to redeem? To heal? To restore? And if he is, then surrender and let him do what he does. And as you experience that redemption, you won't be able to help but explode it out onto others and you watch yourself leave from the middle of the crowd. You watch yourself leave in such a way it becomes contagious. And other people begin to hear of the redemption. They begin to hear God's name. And then it's not even your story anymore. But it's only a story of what God can do. God. Would you come into the deep places in our heart where we hide, where there's sin that we are addicted to, where we are held captive, God, so deeply we can't move forward. God, perhaps there's even places that we have ignored for so long we don't even feel the pain of it anymore. God, redeem us and make us holy people. God, may your spirit move in our spirit. May it overflow out of us. Become contagious as we walk with compassion with people around us. And people see your hand in activity. 